nuclear reactor proliferation. In Illinois, a bill to repeal a moratorium on nuclear new builds, most specifically the non-existent small modular nuclear reactors, has passed both state houses and is heading towards the governor's office to be signed or vetoed. But why this push now? Why repeal a bill that has safeguarded citizens of not just Illinois, but really all adjacent and downwind and downriver states, from possible nuclear risks? Ah, but then you hear from a genuine expert, someone who has dedicated 42 years to fighting against nuclear reactor proliferation and misinformation and all its attendant radiological risks, and he tells us, this industry is going to be the square peg that we're going to jam down the round hole to keep the current utility infrastructure in place, to keep the current power players, double meaning there, in place. We don't want these renewables folks cutting into our business. It's going to be the same old good old boy network run by the utilities to keep business as usual. That's what this is about. Well... When Dave Kraft of Chicago-based Nuclear Energy Information Service lets you know the true framework behind all this pressure to build more, more, more nukes, not only in Illinois, but other states as well, you begin to see how well-organized, well-orchestrated, strategized, and lacking in common sense are those people who are building that terrible, dangerous, awful seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Dave Kraft a co-founder and current head of Nuclear Energy Information Service in Chicago. He'll be talking about recent moves in that state to get rid of the 1987 moratorium on new builds of nuclear reactors and implications which reverberate far beyond that one state. It's an object lesson for any state that is currently being pressured to roll back any limitations on the nukester's ability to spread their technological claws into more and more reserves of money that's supposed to go to renewables. But given this poaching on the funds, we're not going to get solar and wind out of it. We will also have nuclear news from around the world. Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story and more honest nuclear information than we will ever get out of the International Atomic Energy Agency. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 27, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In a story that broke just this morning, 
A whistleblower has released a two-page document from the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, which refutes all the claims of safety that have been made for the radioactive water from Fukushima Daiichi that Japan is planning to release into the Pacific Ocean. It further reveals a planned program of disinformation and manipulation that minimizes the known risks. 1.3 million tons of what has been labeled tritium-contaminated water stored on site at Fukushima is set to be dumped into the Pacific over strenuous objections by China, South Korea, Hong Kong, the Pacific Islands Forum of Nations, as well as the Japanese fishing industry, Japanese citizens, American citizens, and activists from around the world. This document which was released to nuclear-news.net and is currently posted on their website, is dated June 1, 2023, and contains the following statements. Quote, The conclusion points to a favorable finding for the discharge of ALPS, that stands for Advanced Liquid Processing System, not the mountains, the discharge of ALPS-treated water this summer. Even though activity concentrations of some radionuclides above the discharge limits are reported. After IAEA's consultation with the government of Japan, data and results that could be viewed negatively by the public should be removed. IAEA will conduct discussion with all task force experts, those are the people reviewing the data, but their recommendations will not be reflected in the report. It goes on to state, The IAEA will make revisions considering the feedback from high-level officials of Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Japan, Ministry of the Environment, and TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company. TEPCO and relevant Japanese authorities expressed concerns regarding the potential public opposition to some data and results. The IAEA fully understands these concerns and would make revisions. In his post while showing a copy of the document, Hervé Courtois, moderator of Nuclear-News.net, wrote, In 12 years, the TEPCO's ALPS filtering system has never been capable to fully remove all the 64 radionuclides present in that radioactive water, not even to mention the radioactive mud which has accumulated at the bottom of those water tanks. For them to mention in their press releases only the tritium as being present in the quote-unquote treated water is their habitual lying by omission. And there's more. There have been concerns raised about the veracity of this document because it so perfectly refutes everything that Japan, the IAEA, and TEPCO have been saying. In truth, Activists and those covering these issues have shared concerns about all of these talking points with each other. This document is almost too good to be true. We are treating it as true for now on this program. If there are any changes, I will be having a special on it next week on Nuclear Hot Seat number 628, coming out on July 4, 2023. Two additional points. The IAEA's director, Rafael Grossi, is scheduled to be in Japan on July 4 and is expected to issue an official approval of the plan at that time. But note that the IAEA has in its charter the mandate to support nuclear energy production, 
which many suspect may be the underlying factor in approval of this plan. And the timing of Grossi's visit is also suspect for those of us here in the United States, as July 4th, Independence Day, is a day when most Americans will be focused on fireworks and, quote, bombs bursting in air, not the time bomb of the approval of the release of this radioactive water into the Pacific, a step which cannot be reversed. As we find out more, we will let you know. Meanwhile, some analysts believe that resisting goods with potential nuclear radiation contamination risks can be extended to regions apart from Fukushima in Japan and products beyond seafood. In addition to seafood bans already announced by China, South Korea, and Hong Kong, this boycott or ban can extend to Japan's exports of agricultural, forestry, and food products, which represent 9.3 billion U.S. dollars for the 11 months through November 2022. Now with her take on the water release, plans of Japan, and its further implications, Here's Linda Penn-Scunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. I've recently returned from France, where I took part in the relaunch of what promises to be a newly vibrant and well-coordinated nationwide French anti-nuclear campaign. While there, I also met with a number of France-based Japanese anti-nuclear activists. The inevitable topic of our conversation was the impending dumping of a massive amount of tritium-contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean from the stricken Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant site. And it's not only the tritium we need to worry about. Even the Japanese authorities in charge of the filtration system have admitted that it will not be able to remove 100% of the other radioactive isotopes in the wastewater. These include cobalt-60, strontium-90, and cesium-137. And let's not be fooled that this is some sort of one-off event either. The dumping of this radioactive water will go on for decades. This plan, which sadly looks set to begin as soon as next month, has received worldwide attention and strident opposition from many quarters, including the scientific community, as well as other Pacific nations that will be affected, and of course the Japanese fishing industry. This latter has already been hit financially, with a 30% drop last month in imports of Japanese seafood products into South Korea, caused by concerns over the impending release of contaminated water into the ocean. These concerns are supported by the discovery, according to my Japanese colleagues, that there was a significant rise in radioactive contamination in fish around the plant even before the discharge tunnels were built, suggesting there have been prior leaks of radioactive liquid from the site. The Fukushima radioactive water dump doesn't need to happen, as the accumulation of radioactive water on the site has slowed down considerably, and there is plenty more land there on which to build more, and more robust, storage tanks. But what alarms Japanese activists and others is that this rush to make those tanks disappear is part of a larger strategy to erase the Fukushima nuclear accident itself. Likewise, getting rid of the black plastic bags of radioactive topsoil eliminates another inconvenient optic. And now we learn that nuclear evacuees who return home will be deleted from the statistics of Fukushima refugees, further minimizing the consequences of the disaster. The Tokyo Olympics, delayed for a year because of COVID and not because of the unacceptable levels of radioactivity still in the environment, was yet another example of efforts to wipe away all traces of the accident and claim it was all cleaned up and over with. 
This pattern was evident after the 1979 Three Mile Island nuclear accident, which launched the persistent lie that no one died, and continued after the 1986 Chernobyl disaster, whose extensive and ongoing impact on health and the environment has been heinously downplayed and covered up. We will likely never know the true toll of that nuclear accident. And then there is the July 16, 1979 Church Rock Uranium Tailings disaster in New Mexico, which almost no one knows or talks about. On that day, 90 million gallons of liquid radioactive waste and 1,100 tons of solid mill wastes burst through a broken dam wall at the Church Rock Uranium Mill, creating a flood of deadly effluents that permanently contaminated the Puerco River. It was the worst accidental release of radioactive waste in U.S. history, but it was an easy catastrophe to erase because it hurt a small Navajo farming community, a people the U.S. government had already attempted to erase and whose stories and suffering were then, and are largely still, kept out of sight and mind. Five weeks after it occurred, the mine and mill operator, United Nuclear Corporation, was back in business as if nothing had happened. The determination to minimize and then wipe out all memory of a nuclear disaster is what we can expect after the next one, which is not so much a possibility as an inevitability. And while we might think the most likely such inevitability is at the precarious Saporizhia nuclear power plant, caught up in the war in Ukraine, and at the center of seemingly endless alarm bells and rumors, a nuclear power disaster could happen anywhere at any time. After all, there were no wars going on around Three Mile Island, Chernobyl and Fukushima. All three disasters were largely the result of human error, combined with the inherent danger of nuclear technology itself. And yes, even Fukushima fits in this category, because it was human beings who decided not to build the seawall high enough to hold back the kind of tsunami they knew was possible. As Japan moves inexorably closer to committing this atrocious act of marine pollution, our Japanese colleagues need our support. Indeed, we need a tsunami of voices around the world calling on Japan to take the more reasonable storage measures available until such time, if there ever is one, that a better solution can be found. The Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster cannot be allowed to vanish from the history books. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Here in the United States, in Texas, a brutal heat wave has shot temperatures into the triple digits for more than a week, and it is continuing. This has spiked electricity needs for air conditioning and refrigeration. And what is saving the state of Texas from an all-out blackout? Not nukes. The Comanche Peak 1 nuclear reactor never returned to full power after it scrammed on June 16th. So what's keeping the AC and refrigerators on in Texas? Solar. Analysts have linked the continuation of power to Texas's doubling of the amount of solar energy it has generated since early 2022. And according to the University of Texas research scientist Joshua Rhodes, solar is producing 15% of total energy right now. The state now leads the nation in renewable energy. In New York, on the Hudson River near New York City, decommissioning company Holtec plans to release 1.3 million gallons of water contaminated with radioactive tritium into the river as part of the Indian Point plant's decommissioning. Much like in Japan, 
Supporters of the planned releases say that the concentration of tritium is far below federal standards, with no critical evaluation of flaws in those standards, for which we will link to an episode where we interviewed Mary Olson of Gender and Radiation Project to explain exactly how those standards have been manipulated. Despite Holtec's claims, opponents along the river question health and safety concerns, and communities along the river have already passed resolutions opposing the discharges. An online petition has gathered more than 440,000 signatures, and on Tuesday, June 20th, a bill sponsored by two Hudson Valley Democrats that would ban radiological discharges into the river was approved by the State Assembly. This after it passed the Senate earlier this month, so it being signed into law is imminent. Over to Russia, where first there was a coup, then suddenly there wasn't a coup, and the country and the world are left wondering, what the hell was that? The Wagner Group, an independent army led by former Putin ally Evgeny Prigozhin, had vowed to go all the way to Moscow to topple Russia's military leadership. The apparent coup attempt lasted only 24 hours until on Saturday, Prigozhin called off the rebellion and agreed to leave Russia for Belarus. But Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko had declared on June 13 that the country had already received some of Russia's tactical nuclear weapons and warned that he wouldn't hesitate to order their use if Belarus faced an act of aggression, which raises two questions. One, might Prigozhin gain some control over the nuclear weapons that are already in Belarus? And back in Russia... The Wagner mercenary group's march on Moscow has revived an old fear in Washington. What happens to Russia's nuclear stockpile in the event of domestic upheaval? In Ukraine, on June 22nd, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky made an alarming public announcement suggesting that an attack on the Zaporizhia 6-reactor nuclear site could happen at any moment. The intelligence came from Ukraine's main directorate, and the prospect of a provoked accident has been raised before. But now Kirillyo Budinoy, who leads the main directorate military intelligence organization, said that the cooling pools for the nuclear reactors at Zaporizhia had been mined by Russian troops. Without cooling, the nuclear reactors could melt in a period of between 10 hours and 14 days. Budinov said that the plan was entirely, quote, drafted and approved. The only element missing is the order to act, quote, and then it can happen in a matter of minutes. Ukrainian intelligence has determined that Russian troops have moved vehicles packed with explosives to four of the six power units. We do live in interesting times. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, how do we get to a nuclear-free future? It would be nice if wishing for it would, would make it happen, but it won't. The entire nuclear fuel chain, starting with uranium mining on mostly indigenous lands that leaves a legacy of radioactive waste, to the manufacture of nuclear weapons and reactor fuel, to the known health dangers of living near a nuclear reactor, to the forever dangerous legacy of so-called spent nuclear fuel rods, and of course there's nuclear weapons, it's all out there, poisoning the land, the air, the water, and, unfortunately, us. And all of it is supported by a financially well-funded nuclear industry PR propaganda push that spends millions of dollars every month to get their message embedded into the news cycle and the public's brains. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. 
Now in its 13th year, Nuclear Hot Seat is the only podcast where you can reliably get a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information every week. It's from a different perspective that we bring you stories and insights that nukesters and their political minions would rather you not know. To celebrate the start of our 13th year, I invite you to support the show by donating to help cover our monthly running costs. How about $13 in honor of 13 years? You could make it one time only or a monthly recurring donation. All of it will help and everything is appreciated. Help us Amplify the voices of others who have important things to say to you and to power. So right now, go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's a red Donate button you can click or send through Zelle to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Either way, the donation is tax deductible because we are a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. So donate now and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. Dave Kraft is a safe energy anti-nuclear advocate and co-founder of Nuclear Energy Information Service, or NEIS, where he has served as its director since its inception in 1981. Kraft's interest in the environment moved him to found NEIS with seven other people in order to provide the public with credible information about the hazards and effects of nuclear power and waste and the visible means to replace them. Kraft has testified in hearings related to nuclear power at the state and federal levels and is a co-founder of the Radiation Monitoring Project, designed to provide training and field monitors to communities contaminated by radioactive substances. He has received recognition and awards for his work, including, in 2016, the Judith Johnsrud Unsung Hero of the Year Award for his lifelong activism. I spoke with Dave Kraft on June 25th, 2023. Dave Kraft, always great to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Good to be back. Thank you. Let's take a look at the nuclear history in Illinois to begin with, to give us some grounding. How many commercial nuclear reactors have been built in the state and are currently in operation? Illinois is a great place to start, primarily because the nuclear age began here in 1942. We are also the state with the largest number of reactors, both in operation and ever constructed. There were 14 reactors total that were built in Illinois, commercial power reactors, that is. As of our taping here today, 11 are still in operation. We've accumulated somewhere on the order of 11,000 tons of high-level radioactive waste with no place to go. If we were a nation, we would be the world's 11th largest nuclear power. We're certainly the first largest nuclear power in the United States. Not necessarily an accolade to be proud of. What is under consideration right now and what is contentious right now is the 1987 Illinois Nuclear Construction Moratorium. What was the 1987 Illinois Nuclear Construction Moratorium? And again, Illinois is a good place to to go for this. The moratorium was passed back in the day, as they say, in part to protect the state from becoming the nation's de facto high-level radioactive waste dump. As I mentioned earlier, we have 11,000 tons of waste now. But it was recognized back then that if more reactors were built, that would mean more high-level radioactive waste. It was also observed, correctly, that the federal government was dragging its feet on its legal obligation 
to open a permanent disposal facility for high-level radioactive waste. And again, if we look back at history, we all know Yucca Mountain was the unfortunate victim of that dart-throwing contest. It never did open, which means every state that has produced radioactive waste is stuck holding the bag until the feds get off the dime. So back in 87, the thinking was, if the feds don't get a facility built and they want something temporary, they're more than likely to want to ship the least amount of waste, the shortest amount of distance, which meant that since Illinois had the most amount of waste, it didn't make sense for us to ship out. It made more sense for us to take waste in. So that was part of the thinking going on back in 1987 was, again, to minimize the amount of high-level radioactive waste, understanding that back then we had 14 reactors in operation. Uh, but we certainly didn't want to take everybody else's high-level radioactive waste holding on to it until the feds got off the dime and did their job. So that was primarily it, minimize high-level radioactive waste. And it's a fairly logical desire. I mean, we joked about this in our hearings with the legislature many, many times. At the same time we were building all these reactors in Illinois, Chicago was putting up two enormous skyscrapers, what became the Sears Tower and the John Hancock Building. And my question to the legislature was, what if they built those skyscrapers without bathrooms? Because essentially that's what the nuclear industry has done. They have been allowed to create waste with no place to put it. We think we would have had fundamentally different skyscrapers if, if that were the case. And we certainly don't have a fundamentally different nuclear power industry as a result. So it's a very reasonable request that if you defecate in somebody's living room, you clean it up and you take care of it. Apparently, that hasn't really registered with the nuclear industry or the federal government yet. What has this nuclear construction moratorium achieved? The moratorium, we believe, succeeded in its function. It minimized the amount of radioactive waste. The industry hasn't built any more reactors, which was really all the, the moratorium said, is that you cannot construct new power reactors until the federal government has a disposal facility in place, not storage facility disposal facility. And we make that distinction very, very strongly with whoever we talk to. Make that distinction for us right now. Sure. Disposal is really what it says. It's over. File and forget it. It's done. It's not moving anywhere. It's not ever going to come back. Storage is a temporary thing. And that's what we're doing now. We are storing high-level radioactive waste at whatever it is, 70-some sites around the United States right now with no place to dispose of it. The language is important because it's enshrined in federal legislation. So it's not just English semantics here, it's the law. And we wanna make sure that when laws are passed, they use the right words. So why the move to repeal this law now? What is the purported rationale being used by legislators or by the nuclear industry to support repealing the moratorium? Well, not just in Illinois, but all around the country, it's the nuclear power industry's ambition to go to the next generation of nuclear power reactors, whatever they might be. The prime candidates right now are called small modular nuclear reactors, SMNRs, but there are other advanced designs which are not necessarily small modular nuclear reactors. So the point is the nuclear industry, the Biden administration, all of the pro-nuclear folks around the country attempting to resurrect a moribund nuclear power industry and one of the ways to do that is by getting rid of these moratoriums so they have places to actually build the reactors. If I could share a quote uh, real quick with you, 
This is from the Breakthrough Institute, which is a pseudo-environmental organization, which is very pro-nuclear. And in a paper that they entitled Advancing Nuclear Energy, which came out a couple of years ago, this is what they have in mind and what has to be done in order to get the nuclear industry moving. New federal regulatory frameworks currently being formulated and streamlining of existing rules will be key to ensuring timely licensing and construction of new advanced reactors. More importantly, lifting state-level moratoria and restrictions on nuclear power projects will expand market opportunities and attract new capital investment to states that reform existing legislation. And then finally, they go into how you do that. Federal loan guarantees, licensing modernization and fee reforms, clean energy tax credits, and inclusion of nuclear energy in state clean energy portfolios. That sounds like the template that has been and is being followed by the nuclear industry right now. Exactly. They're putting that roadmap into effect. And we see that at every level. This is not an accidental thing. It is an incredibly detailed, constructed program from the top down. And when I say the top, I'm referring to the Biden administration, which is one of the most pro-nuclear administrations we have had in decades, certainly since Bush first. And we see that in so many ways. We see the Infrastructure Act and the IRA legislation that got passed that lavished tens, if not hundreds of billion of, of dollars worth of loan guarantees, Department of Energy grants, you name it, on the nuclear industry moving forward. We see the Biden administration sending Secretary of Energy Granholm on speaking tours all over the nation, extolling the virtues of new nuclear and why we need it. We see just the other day, uh, as of this taping, meeting and press statement from uh, President Biden and the Prime Minister of, of India, Moti, who are very much talking about a pro-nuclear future and cooperation between the two countries. We see it in the Department of Energy grants that are being given out, not just to the utilities, but even as far down as academia, the universities are getting new programs to train new nuclear people, and even down to what's on the DOE website aimed at high school and grade school levels, you're seeing a pro-nuclear push. So this is extremely well orchestrated in the political arena. Let's take a look at the media. You're seeing tons of pro-nuclear op-eds appear in places like the New York Times and elsewhere. If you go on YouTube, you're seeing all different presentations from all specters of, of the population of people who are pro-nuclear. You have the new Oliver Stone disaster movie about why nuclear is such a great thing. And you even have Miss America running around the country saying, we really need nuclear power. Now, I am sure that she didn't wake up one morning as she was adjusting her crown with this idea of, oh, nuclear might be a good idea. This is all planned program from the top down at every level to saturate the public with the idea that we need nuclear power. I refer to these as surgically implanted talking points that have come from a propaganda machine that has millions upon millions of dollars to spend with no end in sight. And their goal is to make as much money as they can off of this industry. Absolutely. You want to come back to Illinois and what happened here. So a bill was introduced last year, which failed, but came back this year and succeeded which would repeal this construction moratorium. So that means that if the governor signs it, and as of this taping he has not signed it yet, the nuclear industry can come in and build literally any kind of reactor they want. 
which was a real switch from the original legislation, which confined the discussion only to what are called small modular nuclear reactors. And the distinction, again, is very important, just like the distinction between disposal and storage. It's generally understood that small modular nuclear reactors are probably no bigger than 300 megawatts in size. And within that category, they even have three breakdowns. There are what are called micro nukes. You would find them at academic institutions like University of Illinois or Purdue or Penn State, which are largely for test and research purposes. And they're generally 10 megawatts and smaller. The next group up are called mini nukes. They're roughly 100 megawatts and below. And they could be used for test and research, but likely are used for small power local needs, but also for industrial steam. And then finally, you go up to the 300 megawatt limit, which is understood, which is the cap for small modulars. But advanced reactors are defined again in law. There was a whole criteria of that was put in place of what small, what uh, advanced reactors look like. Small reactors meet all of those characteristics, but other designs of advanced reactors that are being proposed can go up to as large as some of the reactors that we have in operation today. So they are not necessarily small. They are not necessarily using the same technology as small modular reactors. And they have their own inherent weaknesses, design issues, and certainly safety threats that have largely not been examined. These are the reactors that got approved in the Illinois legislation, not just the small modulars. What happens next is we're waiting to see if the governor will veto this, and we believe he should for a lot of reasons, because what really happened was they took the moratorium as the Trojan horse to really do literally five or six dog and pony shows for the nuclear industry of why we need small modular nuclear reactors. So that's really what was going on here in Illinois. That's what's going on in Oregon. That's what did go on in Wisconsin, which repealed their moratorium. So this is another game plan that has been well orchestrated around the country. And this is the reason why, to promote small and advanced nuclear reactors and open the door for their construction. I'd like to focus in on what we call small modular nuclear reactors. The industry refers to them as small modular reactors, meaning that they take out the other N-word, nuclear, to lessen people's awareness of what's actually being discussed. They call them SMRs. And much of the debate seems to be predicated on the misconception that these small modular nuclear reactors are stocked on some nuclear Walmart shelves, ready to go, good to go, to be popped together and installed out of the box. What is the truth of the current status of any and all small modular nuclear reactors? Well, I'm glad you put the N in because we've been encouraging our colleagues to do that as well. We do that with radioactive waste, too, when they talk about LLRW or HLRW, high-level and low-level radioactive waste. You know, these are not corn cobs and broken ping-pong balls. It's radioactive. But to come back to the small modular nuclear reactors, yes, that is one of the intentions of certain designs is to make them small enough where they can be modularized in factories and literally shipped to locations for construction. Now, when we had to debate this before the legislature, which we only did five or six times, we pointed out that the small modular nuclear reactors are really akin to unicorns. The joke was, that's how are they alike? Neither one exists. In the present day, in the United States, there are no operating small modular nuclear reactors. 
commercially, other than the nuclear Navy stuff. But how are small modular nuclear reactors and unicorns all different? Unicorn poop doesn't last for 250,000 years. And it's certainly not lethal, at least to the best of our knowledge. Exactly. And that was what we pointed out as even as part of the moratorium debate is if you're going to build more small modular nuclear reactors, you're going to end up with more of the wastes that the federal government still doesn't know where to dispose of. But that argument just fell on deaf ears, at least in Illinois. Now, this idea of being modularized and transportable really ought to scare the hell out of everybody, uh, certainly given the recent headlines about East Palestine and rail disasters. I mean, if the most wonderful nation in the world is a nation that allows a thousand rail disasters a year, is that really the nation that you want to start shipping small modular nuclear reactors on trains and on trucks all over the place? The I-95 bridge collapse is a good example You know of what could happen. There was another, just today as we're speaking, there was a bridge that collapsed and put molten sulfur into the Yellowstone River. This is our infrastructure. And these chuckleheads in the nuclear industry want to make these available at, at any Walmart or family dollar store where you can just go get them, throw them on the truck and move them around. But the other point we make is that this won't be confined to the United States. Their aim is to go after international markets, and they are already signing the contracts. The U.S. has signed contracts with Poland. I shouldn't say the U.S. It's, it's really the companies like Holtec International, which signed a 20 SMNR reactor contract with, of all countries, Ukraine. Now, let's stop a minute and think of what that means. What I did in one of our presentations on small modulars was I brought up this point that people want to market this all over the world. They want to make them modular and sell them to industry for steam and for other purposes. And I asked people to engage in a thought experiment, you know, something Einstein was really good at. And I said, imagine if you guys actually got your designs together and they were approved 10 years ago and you sold 200 of those to the Ukrainian government, and they put them in the industrial section of Mariupol. And I'd like for you to see some pictures of what Mariupol looks like today. That was the city in, in 2022 that was almost leveled by Russian bombs, rockets, whatever. And I went on YouTube and downloaded pictures of bomb craters, Mariupol. And you will see that the depth of these bomb craters in Mariupol go below the level that small modular nuclear reactors would be installed at had they been available. I would just ask, what kind of a nuclear wasteland would that territory be today had they gotten their way? And that is the world they want to project these small modulars into, into the hotspots, India and Pakistan, India and China, China and Taiwan, the Middle East, Iran, Iran. It's absurd to think that we will be able to safely proliferate small modulars without also proliferating the likelihood of nuclear catastrophe at the very least, nuclear war at the very worst. The other thing people don't understand at this point is that the type of fuel required for these small modular reactors is much more potent, much more enriched, we say, than the reactor fuel being used at today's reactors. Today's reactors in the United States 
are enriched to a level of say three to five percent of the useful uranium 235 that creates the, the fission that you need for the heat. Small modulars, on the other hand, go right up against a well-understood international barrier of 20% enrichment. That number is significant because beyond that, international agencies consider the, that material as potentially bomb-worthy, that it would be much easier to enrich it further to get to the level that you would want for nuclear weapons, or certainly use it at the 20% level for what we call dirty bombs. So this is the world that the nuclear industry wants to introduce us to by proliferating this material. And the great irony right now is that you have all of these companies falling all over each other to try and get NRC licensed small modular nuclear reactors, and we don't have the capacity to manufacture the fuel. Guess where we get it from? Russia, the only place that exports it and we import it. So Orwell doesn't even come close to describing this situation. It's more like a bad acid trip that they're inflicting on the nation if they think they're going to proliferate these reactors worldwide. What are the justifications used in argument, used before the legislatures by the nuclear industry to entice them to move forward and say, yes, we will give you the right to do this? And just so you know, I'm going to the thing about Illinois needs jobs, we need to provide adequate power, or we need it to fight climate. That's the list that I'm going from for this one. Yes. And you already touched on the big ones. The legislators were all talking about oh, all the jobs. The irony of jobs is that the purpose of the small modular reactor was to reduce the number of staff needed to operate the reactors. So you won't have as many reactor jobs as we even have today, number one. One of the reasons for that is they want to keep the costs down. The idea that the system reliability would be improved with small reactors. Our legislators in Illinois were talking about a crisis in reliability by the year 2030, yet we're not going to have small reactors in operation before 2035. So we asked them point blank, how do reactors that don't exist improve your system reliability? How do reactors that don't exist deal with the job situation? Crickets. Nobody even responded to it. They just pretended we didn't even ask the question. Facts do not matter. We introduced the idea that the cost per unit of energy for small modulars has already been calculated to be greater than today's reactors. And today's reactors in Illinois required $3.05 billion in nuclear bailouts over these last 10 years. So the idea that cost is going to go down by introducing more reactors is ridiculous. What you will do is you'll cut into the market share, further reducing price of energy, which makes reactors requiring more nuclear bailouts in the future. Not only that, they'll be competing with renewables for the already constrained grid access, which is a real problem we have been harping on for over a decade. What the nation really needs is to address the grid problem, the transmission lines, to get the power, because then renewables will just literally kick ass, as they're already doing in terms of cost. Back to the jobs for a moment, though, because another great irony was the very day that the Illinois Senate decided to pass this Trojan horse. We pointed out that ground was broken in the very county where our state capital was to open up an 800 megawatt solar installation. You're still getting a couple hundred megawatts that weren't there before 
The beauty of it is they'll be ready next fall in 2014, whereas small modulars won't be ready until 2035 if the design works. So we ask legislators, well, between now and then, we could actually build five more of these, couldn't we? That would be 4,000 megawatts of power. Construction jobs, 435 construction jobs at the site. These are all going to be union jobs, by the way. And not only that, but the owner of the facility was contracting with local unions to get their people trained in operation of renewable energy facilities at the union level. So we're talking union jobs, we're talking increased system reliability, uh, $100 million estimated over the lifespan of local tax base, crickets. Nobody responded to it. So facts don't matter to these people. The political fix is in. It's coming from the top down, Biden all the way down. And what is the bottom line to all this, you might ask? Other things that have gotten ignored, I, I need to point out, is the political corruption that Illinois just waded through. Our Speaker of the House being indicted by the FBI for utility officials being convicted of bribery and, and corruption at the Illinois level. Not to be outdone, the state of Ohio went through the same thing and the FBI indicted their Speaker of the House and they want prison terms for him for a $61 million bribery case. Not to be outdone there, South Carolina had one of their utility executives plead guilty to a $9 billion nuclear construction fraud, which stopped the construction of the reactor there. So this is an industry that is laden with corruption, doesn't believe in facts, won't do a cost analysis of any kind, ignores expert advice, like two former Nuclear Regulatory Commission chair people, people like that, doesn't even blink at the issue of corruption. What does this say? It says, this industry is going to be the square peg that we're going to jam down the round hole to keep the current utility infrastructure in place, to keep the current power players, double meaning there, in place. We don't want these renewables folks cutting into our business. It's going to be the same old good old boy network run by the utilities to keep business as usual. That's what this is about. And the unions, I'm sorry to say, also play a role in this. It's such a job of brainwashing the public, the unions, the government, the officials on all levels. I know NEIS, like so many groups, is just this tiny group, this small voice that roars, thanks to you and the others on your staff. What are you doing and what can be done still to turn this around? And is there anything that the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat can do to assist you? Well, thanks for, for that offer. What we've uh, been doing is, again, trying to meet with legislators one by one to give them the full spectrum of facts, not just the slick advertising marketing speeches that the nuclear industry does. We kind of joked with some of them saying, you know, you guys are a lot like adolescents buying your first car. If it's red, convertible, and fast, that's the one. But oh, what about insurance? Or what about safety? Or what about mileage? What about cost? You don't pay attention to that. So it's a very immature and adolescent way of doing energy programs, we think. And we kind of poke them a little bit. Beyond that, though, we've tried to get the environmental community to speak out against it. And I will say in Illinois, at least, the Sierra Club has been very helpful in that regard. And some of the other environmental groups have at least 
made statements and filed witness slips against it in the legislature, against the bailout, uh, excuse me, against the repeal. We are circulating a petition, which we are going to be doing all summer long, because what we see this nationwide push at repealing moratorium is really representing is the line in the sand. This is our Rubicon, our, our whatever you want to call it, Armageddon, which is going to say, this will be a nuclear future or this will be a renewable future. you got to choose. There's no more walk in the middle line. And in some of our alerts that we put out, we quoted the legendary activist from Texas, Jim Hightower, uh, who I think is actually, he actually wrote a book with the title that the only thing in the middle of the road are yellow lines and dead armadillos. We tell our environmental colleagues, you can't sit on the fence anymore. What kind of an energy future do you want? So that's something that can be done in any state is to confront the environmental community to galvanize the opposition to nuclear and galvanize the overwhelming support for a renewable energy future. We, of course, have tried to have meetings with the governor. We've been rebuffed seven times. We've had fairly favorable press, business press, I would add, from Crane's Chicago Business, from Illinois Times within our downstate capital, which is a very well-respected and well-read uh, publication. So I think even the business community is catching on to the fact that, gee, after all these bailouts and after all this corruption, maybe this isn't such a good idea or at least should be examined a little closer. So again, we encourage people in all the states, get your op-eds in, get your letters to the editors in, have editorial board meetings, and really run down the facts of what's going on in this unicorn proposal for energy. The last piece, though, and this is something state legislators don't want to deal with, is the fact that this whole charade, this whole show is really going on to act as the continued fig leaf for the nuclear weapons complex. My friend and colleague, Alfred Meyer, has been saying this for years now, that nuclear power is the fig leaf for nuclear weapons. And we've got some pretty fancy quotes that we, we use to convince people of this. Former Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz did that during the Obama administration. He has much said, our national security and our nuclear weapons program is dependent on nuclear power. As if that wasn't enough, the president of France, Macron, a couple of years ago was addressing the nuclear industry in public and said, you can't have one without the other. We can't have nuclear power without nuclear weapons. We can't have nuclear weapons without nuclear power. They are inextricably bound. I mean, we have the exact quote, if anyone wants it, we'll certainly make it available to you. So it's very clear what's going on here, that this is what is needed to perpetuate the nuclear weapons complex, as well as the nuclear power industry. And here's where I get a little testy. And I guess after 42 years of doing this, I can really say that I'm entitled to a little bit of impatience. And that is with my friends and colleagues in the anti-nuclear weapons movement. You guys also have to choose now because many of you for years have not weighed in on the nuclear power issue. And what we have been screaming at you about is the fact that you can't have one without the other. In fact, the whole issue about depleted uranium weapons, it's the waste products from making reactor fuel that is used in depleted uranium weapon manufacture. We've already had nuclear war. We just didn't have the big ones, you know, the thermonuclear ones. We had it in Iraq, questionably had it in Afghanistan and possibly the Balkans. And now we're sending depleted uranium weapons to Ukraine. This is nuclear proliferation. 
And this is all because those two industries are inextricably bound. So it's time for the nuclear weapons community and the nuclear power community to speak as one voice saying, no more. We don't want a nuclear future. And if they can't do that, well, I'll just send them to Jim Hightower. Dave Kraft, it is always a journey in lucidity, in clarity, in exactly every reason why we have to be enraged at what the nuclear industry, the nuclear military industrial governmental complex has been doing to us and is trying to continue to do to us. So I want to thank you for all your 42 years of work and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Dave Kraft, director of NEIS, Nuclear Energy Information Service, headquartered in Chicago. We will have a link up to the petition he mentioned on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 627. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons has announced their 2023 Hiroshima ICANN Academy. This is a free platform for educating young people on nuclear weapons and global risks. Examining the humanitarian and environmental consequences of nuclear weapons, the Academy explores ways to build a sustainable, secure world for all. This will take place in October in three separate sessions. The first, in the first half of October, will be an online learning and webinar session that will include units on civil society in action and disarmament diplomacy. The second session will take place in Hiroshima City in Japan. They will hear testimony from Hibakusha, those who survived the atomic blast, and visit A-bombed sites and the Peace Memorial Museum, along with other learning about other nuclear weapons-related topics. And the third session will take place after participants return to their places of residence, an online forum to share how they will apply what they have learned through the Academy in their respective activities, locations, and initiatives. The program is aimed for participants 25 years and younger, though there have been occasional exceptions in the past. There is no charge to participate, Participants are responsible for their travel expenses to Hiroshima for the second part of the training, but there are a limited number of scholarships available that can cover the travel costs as well. Fifteen participants will be chosen from nuclear weapons states, meaning China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and 15 from countries that are non-nuclear weapons states. Among the participants, at least one will have a connection to Hiroshima Prefecture. All programs will be conducted in English. So if you know or if you are a young person with a passion for learning more about these issues and working on them, we will have a link up to the 2023 Hiroshima ICANN Academy on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 627. You can also find the full material by going to the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, website. And congratulations to Arjun Makajani on publication of his book, Exploring Tritium's Danger. Makajani, 
trained as a nuclear engineer and now president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, has over the past 40 years provided clear, concise, and important scientific insights that have enriched our understanding of the nuclear age. In so doing, Makajani has built a solid reputation as a scientist working in the public interest. Exploring Tritium's danger is available through the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research or through politics-pros.com. It is not currently available on Amazon. And if you would like an easy way to support the show, go to nuclearhotseat.com and sign up in the yellow opt-in box. You have to scroll down a little bit for it, but it's there. Google algorithms like it when we show a robust database, so this would be a big help to us. Or you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat on Facebook and click follow, like, any of the buttons that are down there, add a comment, and then forward the link to two people you think would be interested in learning more about nuclear everything. It's the best way, and given our budget, the only way to get the show out to others. So your assistance is appreciated in building our reach so that Google and Facebook algorithms recognize, pick up the show, and get it out to even more places. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 27, 2023. Hey, I forgot to mention, you can get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week if, on the website, you scroll down for the yellow opt-in box, just put in your first name, you can put in an alias if you like, but do put in a real email address so that every week we can send you an episode of the show with the link to the recording and a brief rundown of some of the material that's in it. That way you will never miss another episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need and appreciate your help. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as you cite the program, the website, and if you are quoting any of the guests, give them names. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat reminding you that any country with nuclear plants has given their enemies nuclear weapons. There you have it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.